I want to read these words to you from Leviticus 25. It says this uh, in verse 8. You shall count off seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, that's 49, so that the period of seven weeks of years gives 49 years. Then you shall have the trumpet sounded loud on the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement. You shall have the trumpet sounded throughout all your land. You shall hallow the 50th year. You shall proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee, for you shall return every one of you to your property and every one to your family. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. For you. you shall not sow or reap the aftergrowth or harvest the unpruned vines, for it is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You shall eat only what the field itself produces. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. This idea of jubilee, it's like one of the first books of the Bible. The third one is built into the life of God's people. And I could go on in chapter 25 of Leviticus to read all of these descriptions of what jubilee, this this built-in celebration was supposed to mean. And that's something our our Jewish friends uh, really capture in their life because there's these festivals built into their calendar are both civic and religious, that it has some impact on their communal life and also their spiritual, worshipful, religious life. And so this is one of them, and it's actually one that's not not practiced as, as, as strictly as some others, but they would blow this ram's horn as you heard this trumpet. It's actually where the word jubilee comes from, Yuval, is this ram's horn, and they would blow it to mark the, the beginning of this 49th year, then into the 50th year, and then all of these things would happen. If I had kept reading, you would have heard all the things that should have been done on jubilee. And this is really oversimplification, but there's kind of some broad brushstrokes here that, one, as you heard, you're not going to grow anything in the land. If you read Genesis, one of the things that God tells Adam and Eve when they leave the garden is, you're going to have to toil in the land. Stuff's not just going to pop up anymore. You're going to have to cultivate and make room for things to grow. And so in remembrance of this this pre-time, pre-fall time in Genesis, you're not going to toil over the land. You're going to remember initially who you were created to be. You're not going to till the land. You're not going to toil and sweat over it. You're going to celebrate instead. And not only that, if you own land that actually belongs to somebody else, you're going to give it back. This really radical thing that this land would change hands and debt slavery and all this. And so at the 49th year into the 50th year, if you own land that didn't belong to you, you gave it back. And then not only that, there was some kind of social aspect too that, that people that were in debt slavery to one another would forgive the debt and say it doesn't matter anymore. Jesus told parables about this actually, that your debt is forgiven it's wiped clean, we start fresh. The land would start fresh, the community would start fresh, the people would start fresh, relationships would start fresh. Jubilee was a mark of time, a celebration, a party, the trumpet would sound and things would be celebrated and let go. All of those four reasons I gave for partying are found in the description of Jubilee. That something new was happening. We're gonna start a new year, we're gonna start a new age, we're gonna start a new era and that's worth celebrating. And there's going to be justice and liberation, and, and we're going to cel- celebrate that together. And, and we're just going to celebrate just because uh, we're going to get to this seven times seventh year, this 49th year, and we're going to celebrate together. And there's going to be freedom, and there's going to be transformation, there's going to be new, and there's going to be something uh, accomplished. We're going to work together in this community, and it's worth celebrating all four of those marks. And one thing that I've kind of determined in, in 
preaching and starting to preach every week and, and reading the scriptures and, and then looking at Leviticus and choosing weeks ago that I was going to preach on Leviticus is to kind of dispel with the rumor and the myth and the idea that there's one God in the Old Testament and there's a new God in the New Testament who say, okay, which of these gods likes to party? I think many of us would say the New Testament God, <laughs> Jesus. And then I look at Leviticus built into the law, though it doesn't come up many more times as this, this, this charged and commanded celebration of Jubilee. And I, I want to say, look, there's this common thread all throughout the story of God and God's people of celebration, of newness of life. Isaiah says, behold, with God's voice, I am doing a new thing or accomplishment that, that all these descriptions of these kings who built these great kingdoms, they would celebrate. You can read in Chronicles and Kings that part of David's accomplishment, military accomplishment or kingdom accomplishment, they would have these feasts and they would celebrate. And then, uh, of course, all across the prophets, these people were liberated and freed or in the story of the Exodus, when they, when they left Egypt and they, when they went into the promised land, they celebrated after they grumbled a little bit, but then they celebrated. <laughs> And they lifted up their voices in proclamation of who God is, this God that liberates and we celebrate it. You know, in the, the Prince of Egypt, they sing this song, Ashira la Adonai, ki ga'o ga'ah. And it means great is the Lord, he's victoriously been a victor. He's won in a really winsome way. That this God, we celebrate who he is, it's part of who God is. And then often we find in the Old Testament even people just celebrating for the sake of celebrating. One of my favorite ones is in the book of Ecclesiastes, which is really kind of a grumpy, kind of no fun book to read from beginning to end, but I get a lot out of it. Is he says actually the, the beginning of wisdom, the core of what it means to be a wise person, or we would say a person who expertly lives a human life. He says the beginning of wisdom is to fear God. And what he means by that is to revere and respect and honor who God is and God's identity and then the result of that beginning of wisdom, and the beginning of wisdom is to fear God, the result is what Ecclesiastes says is to eat, drink, and be merry. It's my favorite command in the Bible. I'm really good at it. <laughs> that because of who God is, because we revere him and fear him in the, in the reverent sense, we can eat, drink, and be merry because of who God is. And again, we can trace that, all of those examples, and many more from the Old Testament, then into the life of Jesus. Life of Jesus, of course, that we say, who gives new life as we witness in baptism. Something new is happening. If we read in the, books of, the book of Acts, the beginning of this new community of people, and it was worth celebrating. And I mentioned it a few weeks ago. One of the best passages in scripture is, is the people in the early church, they were, they were charged with being drunk. And the response was, well, it's only nine in the morning, <laughs> but it's also not drunkenness. It's the Holy Spirit. We're celebrating because God is doing something new. And then, of course, Jesus on, on the cross who utters these words, it is finished, this accomplishment. And we read all the authors of the New Testament say over and over and over again, what has Jesus accomplished on our behalf and how it's worth celebrating at the table? And then, of course, this, this God who is just and liberates the captive uh, in Egypt, he also liberates us spiritually and liberates us in who we are in our person. And we read in the New Testament, it is for freedom that I am set free and that's worth celebrating. And then again in the New Testament, just as in the old and our own inclination is to party and celebrate just because. Jesus' first miracle recorded in John's gospel is at a wedding in Cana and he turns water into wine and they celebrate this thing that's happened just because they, they celebrate. 
We have, we have so much reason. We have so many opportunities. We have so, so much drive for us to celebrate. And I want to say also, many of us here, and, and even part of myself this morning is saying, there's also an awful lot of reason not to celebrate. There's also a lot of things in our world to say, how can I celebrate and party in the face of that? But I think the, the charge and the challenge of Jubilee all the way through the Old Testament, then all the way through Jesus' life in the New Testament, all the way through church history to land at us is to say, we celebrate in spite of the evil and injustice in the world. And we celebrate and party to combat it. And we bring joy and celebration to the world uh, over and against the things that seek to destroy. As we read these questions in baptism, that we want to seek to root out all evil and injustice and impression, uh, oppression in the world in whatever form it presents themselves, and one of our strongest weapons is true Christian joy and celebration. That because of who God is, we can eat, drink, and be merry uh, in a rebellious sort of punk rock way against the negativity of the world. And this isn't being naive or the power of positive thinking. It's recognizing who God is a God of love and justice, of newness and a transformation, and say, I want to be like that. It's to imagine a picture of Jesus, not smug and frowning, but smiling and laughing and remembering Jesus holding a child and saying, unless you be like one of these, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and Rich Mullins, the famous Christian singer, he imagined that he was an uncle. He never had children of his own. And he was like, I imagine Jesus is like me when I get to be the fun uncle. And this child is climbing all over me and throwing them in the air and they're climbing over my back and I say, unless you be like one of these, you cannot enter the kingdom. Unless you celebrate, unless you party and laugh and smile like a child, you cannot enter. It's who God is. When we come to this table each week, one thing that you may not see is in the liturgy and the words that the pastor and Katie or Michelle or Stacy or myself read when we come to this table is the kind of script or the, the liturgy we go through. And often it'll, in giving the lines, it'll say the congregation and then the pastor, it's the celebrant, the one who celebrates at the table. That, that really, literally, truly, when we come to this table, it's a joyful, wonderful thing that we we smile and we excitedly and hopefully receive this gift as a celebration, not simply as a remembrance, but as a party, as Michelle often says when she's at the table, as a dinner party, that we celebrate when we're the, we're the celebrant. And it's not just the, the person behind the table that's the celebrant, it's you who's the celebrant. And that's extended all through church history to people who celebrated at this table long before we ever did, and truly goes back to the one who celebrated first, and that was Jesus, that's part of God's character. Uh, there's an idea about God in his triune, his Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's a, many different ways to explain that, and it's a fun thing to think about and reflect on about the beauty of who God is in Father, Son, and Spirit, and there's this word perichoresis, this Greek word that some people describe as a dance or a community or a circle and a kind of encircling, dynamic way of being. And we could also think about it, you know, where two or three are gathered in my name, this gathering of persons in the Godhead as a party, that eternally out of God's joy and love, creation came forth. And out of God's love and compassion and excitement for this creation that he created and loved and longed for, even they were rebelled against him, he set a table for them and wanted, longed to celebrate and eat with them. And so he came to be with them in the person of Jesus. And then that person... God in the flesh celebrated at a table with even people who would betray him. As celebrant, he threw a party and said, come on in, I invite you. And then extended it to the church and said, you're gonna go to all nations and you're gonna continue to celebrate and party together and that draws people in. 
That's the sort of community I want us to be. Is people to look at branches and to people to, to look at people that come from this place and look at our community and, and look at who we are and that unspoken core value of let's party and not as people that are like debauched, wild, crazy people. <laughs> but as people are like, there is a joy overflowing from them that can only come from somewhere else. They celebrate. When they come to the table, they long for it and they long to be filled with it and they don't get in the car when they leave and say, I hope not, I hope you don't say this. Like my friend Kevin, could I please get that hour and a half of my life back? (laughs) That we celebrate with Christ, who celebrates with us even now, this God who in Father, Son, and Spirit is joyful and in, in an eternal love relationship with one another and with us and that pours forth into us and then out of us into the world. I was on vacation this past week, and we were in Massachusetts. And we went to Newburyport in Massachusetts, uh, which is kind of near Cape Ann. And uh, there is a famous Methodist preacher buried there, uh, George Whitfield. Uh, and he's in Old South Presbyterian Church in Newburyport. And just a little insight into my life is like, we're on vacation, and we're going to the beach and getting ice cream every day. And I'm like, Landon, you know what would really be great for our vacation? Can we go see this dead guy's remains in the bottom of this church? Vacation, yeah, let's go do it, you know? Uh, And so we drove to Newburyport. We had some other stuff we were going to do there that day. So we pull up to this church, totally nondescript, not really anything going on. There's not a line out the door or anything to go into this tomb under this church or anything. But I'm like, let's go. George Whitfield's remains are here. And so there's a bell, ring the bell. There's no sign about it or anything. And this woman who comes up, who we then learn is the church administrator, she opens the door, and I get out a handful of words. Hey, I'm a Methodist pastor from Texas. And she goes, come on. (laughs) (laughs) And we go in, and she shows me the beautiful sanctuary and the long list of pastors who have been the pastor there for so many years. And then we go down into the crypt. And there's also some storage down there. But then there's also a crypt and a cast of George Whitfield's skull and a cast of his Bible and a little plaque about him. And, you know, Landon's mom later said, whatever floats your boat, you know, whatever you get excited about. I'll show you pictures later. I'm just like grinning from ear to ear. I took one kind of like this, you know, I thought that was really funny. Uh, And I just really moved. Like there's this hero of the Christian faith right here and he longed to be buried here. And there's no magic about it or anything, but the story that came to mind was George Whitfield and John Wesley, John Wesley, the kind of start, starter of this Methodist movement that were kind of a result of. Uh, they were friends and then they weren't friends, to put it simply. And they had kind of a negative, combative correspondence with one another. And they didn't like the conclusions they came to about theology or doctrine. And one time someone asked George Whitfield, well, you have all these differences with John Wesley. Do you think you're gonna see John Wesley in heaven? And uh, George Whitfield said, no. Kind of a shocking answer. And he said, because he'll be so close to the throne of God and I'll be so far back, I won't even be able to see him. This party in heaven that we all expect, this heart that George Whitfield had, though I have come to different conclusions than he did too. And he had this vision that I wanna have for us, for our community, but also a future vision for us that, that everyone's invited and and who cares about our disagreements or our divisions or our differences and who cares about who we think should come to the party, who shouldn't come to the party, because it's not our party. And we say it every week that God in Jesus Christ is the one inviting. And there's gonna be people there that we're gonna be shocked to see. And there's gonna be be people, as George Whitfield described, so close to the throne of God that we're not even gonna know they're there. (laughs) Because 
God's invitation is universal and general, and our charge in celebration and partying is not partying a celebration for its own sake, but for the sake of the one who draws all people to himself. And he does so by setting a table, by opening a door, by taking on flesh, by saying, come and follow me, drop what you're doing and walk alongside me and I'll be with you every step of the way. That's who I think we should be. That's who I think God is calling us to be. That's the sort of partying and celebration that I long for my own life to reflect or for your life to reflect and we witness a baptism or come to the table that we're reminded of and expect in the future that all people can come, that all people are welcome, that all people have an invitation to this party, that newness comes from it, transformation comes from it, justice and liberation come from it, and also just because of who God is, we participate in it. So in like the clearest, most positive, invitational way I can possibly say, honestly, it's not a joke, it's not a cutesy, gimmicky thing we say, truly, for God's sake, let's party. Pray with me.